What is going on, Freedom Pack family? Today on the show, we are joined by author, keynote speaker, and executive coach to some of the most powerful speakers and organizations in the world. It's Carmine Gallo. Gallo's books have been endorsed by billionaires such as Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, Mark Benioff, major CEOs from companies like Berkshire Hathaway, Zappos, and he's also been endorsed by wide-ranging experts, people that you and I know, like Tony Robbins and Adam Grant. Carmine is one of the most influential voices in communication, in business, and in leadership, and has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Success Magazine, CNN, CNBC, the list goes on and on. Gallo has built a reputation for transforming leaders into powerful storytellers and communicators at the world's largest and most admired brands. Let me just give you a little run-through of the companies that Carmine has worked for. These include Amazon, Accenture, Allstate, Apple, Berkshire Hathaway, Chevron, Coca-Cola, Google, Intel, LinkedIn, McKinsey, Medtronic, Microsoft, Walmart, and many, many more. These are brands which you and I touch every single day. Carmine is also a Harvard instructor and he writes popular columns for Forbes, Inc. and the Harvard Business Review. In this episode, we will be discussing how you can get your ideas heard, how you can become more influential and persuasive, and also how some of the greatest leaders of our times influence the masses. I'm talking people like Abe Lincoln, I'm talking Steve Jobs, I'm talking Nelson Mandela. This is an extremely thought-provoking conversation and one that I promise you is of high use to you with one of the most highly sought-after coaches in all of America. If you are a Steve Jobs junkie, if you are obsessed with Steve Jobs and how he influenced people, in particular his 2007 Apple presentation at the reveal of the iPhone, which is widely regarded as one of, if not the best, business presentation ever done, then you will notice how Carmine speaks about it. Carmine has studied Steve Jobs profusely. He even wrote a book about him. This wasn't an easy interview to get, and we feel very privileged to have Carmine on the show. So guys, without any further ado, Carmine Gallo, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to speak to your audience. When we told people that we would be speaking with you, a common and really overwhelming theme was that the people that we spoke to all seemed to believe that they were fantastic public communicators. They were all highly apt at getting their, you know, their messages to spread. And when Lewis and I really dissected it and looked into it, 
we both know from first-hand experiences really that in a lot of cases that it just wasn't true i think that psychologists call this bias the the dunning-kruger effect in which we have a cognitive bias to overestimate our ability you've become a real master in the subject of persuasive technique storytelling effective communication do you feel like the first step to becoming a highly effective communicator whether in public or private is to have perhaps a level of humility about the ability in which one possesses joseph i couldn't i could not agree with you more Uh, Over my 20 plus years of studying communication and persuasion, I very early on reached the same conclusion you did, which was that people who say they are great public speakers, that they present all the time uh, or they speak all the time, almost to a person, they were far below average. And I didn't understand it for many, many years. I knew there was something psychologically going on, but I think you nailed it. There is something called Dunning-Kruger. And people in every field tend to overestimate their abilities. There are a few, however, who are, I'm not going to say open-minded, but they, they understand that there is always something new to learn. Uh, They are growth mindset sort of people. And maybe you folks have talked about Carol Dweck's work in growth mindset. Uh, There really are successful entrepreneurs and business leaders who know that they – that there's a gap between where they are today and where they want to go. Those are the people who I write for because communication is a gray area. Uh, There's always something new to learn. We can always get better. The great speakers, the great presenters of our time practiced, rehearsed, asked for feedback, uh, watched other great speakers. They're learn-it-alls, not know-it-alls. And those are the type of people who I, at this point in my career, those are the people I associate with and they're the ones who I write for. If you're completely closed off to it, you think you're a great public speaker, a fantastic communicator, and everyone loves you and there's no room for improvement, that's fine. I, I, that's just not my audience. <laughs> so I, I, I do appreciate having uh, you invited me on this show. One of the things that you mentioned by there that stuck out to me was this idea of feedback. Uh, and I wonder if it's one of the main themes that you spot in great communicators that they seek out feedback. And, and if that is true, Are there any examples of great leaders that you could give that come to mind when you think of feedback? Almost all great speakers look for feedback. Uh, I'll go back to one of my first books on communication, which was The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs. And I believe to this day that Steve Jobs is one of the greatest corporate storytellers of our time. Very few people came close to having the whole package of design and narrative and message and delivery. I knew years ago when I first wrote that book that Steve Jobs practiced relentlessly for many, many weeks ahead of his major presentations. Rehearsals Uh, were just like a Broadway show, a performance. 
and he took those rehearsals seriously. Last year, uh, and this is you know years after I wrote the book. Last year, I interviewed, had an opportunity to speak with a designer, an Apple designer who worked closely with Steve Jobs on a feature of the first iPhone that they launched in 2007. And so he had, you know, he was a young engineer at the time, but he worked on one feature. He was called in to the presentation room to watch Steve Jobs's presentation on that one feature. It's all very secretive, so he didn't see the rest of it. He was shocked at the level of practice that Steve Jobs put in. But more than that, the feedback. He would get on stage and take on that character, you know, the persona of this entrepreneur, this visionary entrepreneur. He would raise his voice and use gestures and go through the whole thing as if he were speaking to thousands of people. But there were only the engineer and a handful of other executives in the room. But he was using the room like he was speaking to thousands. And then the engineer noticed something. He came out of Steve Jobs left character. So he would actually leave the character and come back to his normal state and ask for feedback. What exactly did you notice about that uh, particular presentation? What could I have done better? Uh, what? Where did I miss an opportunity to engage or to speak more clearly? So Steve Jobs worked at it and asked for feedback. It is a common trait among many great speakers and entrepreneurs and communicators that the ones who improve tremendously are the ones who ask for feedback. I began to notice that early on in my uh, journalism career, when I was a broadcast journalist. And I noticed that, getting back to what we said earlier, the people who were really below average, you know, the type of guests who on television we didn't want, we did not want to return, we didn't want to invite them back, they were the ones who said, oh, I'm really good at this. I do this all the time. The ones who asked for feedback were different. They were the ones who went on to become some of the most prominent uh, and visible people in those industries. But I recall when I first met them, they were the ones who asked, asked me for feedback. At the end of an interview, they would approach me in the back room when we were done. Hey, Carmine, how did I do? What could I do better? And I would look at them and I would think to myself, you're already you know, you're an established professional. You were fantastic. I'm not even sure what I can tell you. But those were the people who asked for feedback. Interesting, isn't it? Very interesting. And thank you so much for that story about the designer and Steve. When you were talking about her, I could feel the uh, the haze on my arms just stand up. And I really don't want to do this topic any disservice so i know that you spent a large portion studying steve and the tremendous work which he did i know you mentioned the 2007 presentation which he gave which we we will get to i'm sure but i just wondered if you could sum up just how effective of a communicator did you actually find that steve jobs was well i will use a recent example bill gates about well, just recently, uh, in 2019, gave an interview, and he was asked about this. He was asked about what he recalls from Steve Jobs as a communicator, specifically as a presenter of information. And Bill Gates said, well, he was like a grand wizard 
I'm only a minor wizard compared to Steve Jobs. He was the wizard. He could cast spells on people. <laughs> and so that that particular line of the interview went went viral for, you know, a couple of days. And it was the headline of a lot of posts on, on the interview. But that's what he did. He was able to mesmerize people with his vision, not only for products and services, but for where technology is going. But if you look back at Steve Jobs's career, for, uh, starting in 1984, when he introduced the first Macintosh, the beauty of this is all these videos are on the internet. So I would encourage our listeners, uh, type in YouTube 1984 Steve Jobs Mac, and you will see a presenter, a speaker who did not have PowerPoint back then. It had not been invented. He didn't use Apple Keynote slides. He didn't have slides. The typical PowerPoint presentation that we know today, which is largely terrible, we can get into that, uh, didn't even exist back then. And yet he turned it into a drama. He had the Macintosh sitting in the middle of a darkened stage in a black canvas bag. Um, so it was like a magician. It was a show. It was a big reveal. He phrased it in terms of good versus evil and, and giant versus the, you know, the David and Goliath type of uh, narratives. That to me was incredible because that told me that Steve Jobs was an innate storyteller and understood the power of narrative far ahead of when I started writing about storytelling. Uh, storytelling now is kind of a buzzword in, in a lot of business circles. Everyone knows they need to be better storytellers. Steve Jobs was a storyteller in 1984. That's how advanced he was when it came to communication skills. This is so, so interesting to me. And if we just take this to a real granular level and we look at that example of 1984, and I would also say that the 2007 iPhone reveal, he used that persuasive technique that you just talked about with the drama. And I'm just wondering, what other persuasive techniques did Jobs use? If you watch the 2007, and again, go on YouTube, type in 2007 iPhone Steve Jobs. It is one of the greatest presentations you'll ever see in business. And what you'll note, you'll notice a lot of things. I mean, again, I wrote an entire book on it, and then I wrote two other books about Steve Jobs. So there's a lot to cover. The one thing I would leave with your listeners is look at the visuals. The tradi traditional PowerPoint, and I'm going to use PowerPoint because 90% plus of your listeners use PowerPoint. Steve Jobs used Apple Keynote, but it's, it's the same theme. You can take any presentation software and make it wordy and convoluted and confusing, which most presentations are. It's all about text and bullet points. Watch a Steve Jobs presentation. Watch 90 minutes of the iPhone presentation, and you will find no bullet points. There's no bullet point on any slide because the slides complement the narrative. It's the writing. That's why I, I'm actually big on writing, too. you got to be a good writer and understand language and words and how to use words persuasively. Because you have to write out your story first. Then you can condense and edit and craft a presentation. The slides come last. The slides complement the narrative. They're not the narrative. And yet 
most of us, myself included, before I started studying communication, how, how do we present? How do we give a presentation? We open PowerPoint and we start filling in the blanks. It's a template. You fill in your bullet points. That is the, the least effective way of communicating information that is meant to inspire and to capture someone's imagination and move them to action. It's the exact opposite thing of what we have to do. So it's, it's a different way of learning. Uh, it's a different way of thinking through your, your story and your pitch and your ideas. Use, if there's one thing you could take away right now, just in the first few minutes of our conversation, don't give a traditional PowerPoint or presentation again. Think about using your slides in whichever format you use as a complement to the narrative. But the narrative, the story comes first. What I really admire about your work, Carmine, is that you have both coupled up studying the major public speakers in the world over hours and hours, but you've also coupled this with digging into the neuroscience behind it. And I'd love to ask and this is specific to what you were just saying with the bullet points and these real text-orientated PowerPoints, which I completely agree with. What are the real benefits of giving visual slides? Because this is the way our brains evolve to understand uh, language and information. Everything that I talk about is ancient, it's, it's been with us for, more, for thousands of years since our ancestors began painting pictures on cave walls. We evolved as storytelling species, and we evolved as visual beings. So vision uh, is overshadows text almost any day. And there's a lot of neuroscience behind this that supports it. Um, so when the, the people who survived leaving the caves were the ones who could understand the cave drawings, <laughs> you know, so we are visual beings. And yet recently, I'm saying recently, historically, I don't know, over the last 30 years or 20 years since PowerPoint was invented, uh, we've become more text based and that's not exactly the way the brain processes information. Um, in fact, I, I learned through some papers and scientific papers that the way the when your eye reads text it's taking like little pictures of the text and so if you have too much text on a slide it overwhelms and uh, bombards your brain with too much text your brain is choking on text um, because it's taking pictures taking little snapshots which I which I find interesting visuals we're visual learners and yet Almost all of us, we forget that. We forget it when it comes to presentations. And we go right back to words and bullet points. And it's, it's comfortable and it's easy. And we don't want to rock the boat, do we? Uh, we don't want to make too many waves where our presentation looks a lot different than somebody else's presentation. That happens quite a bit. So I think it takes a little courage to get out of your comfort zone and to deliver presentations that are more story-based or more visual. Um, I, I see this all the time. I work with executives at a wide range of companies. I've written nine books on persuasion and you will always get this kind of pushback. You always get this pushback, pushback from 
uh, speakers who say, well, my audience wants a lot of data and they want a lot of information and they want this and that. And so their, their presentations are convoluted and messy and wordy and pie charts after pie chart. <laughs> You've seen some of these presentations, I'm sure. And there's very little visual or very little narrative that goes with these presentations. Uh, well, there's, there's no question now to a person, your audience may say they want facts and information and um, the technical, but when they respond to what they liked about a presentation, it's usually the presentations that are more story-based and more visual. So you have to be careful. Sometimes what your audience tells you they want and what they really need, what the brain craves, are two different things. Uh, so that gets a little more advanced. Actually, everything we're talking about here, guys, is uh, advanced communication skills. If you've noticed, we didn't say, I, I'm not saying walk in front of an audience or make sure you, you give good eye contact. Make eye contact with somebody in your audience when you're speaking. That's public speaking 101, which is fine, and a lot of people need that. But what we're talking about here are more advanced concepts. So I appreciate the, the platform to talk about these ideas. On the subject of delivery, especially on a level like Steve Jobs, as you've talked about, I wonder, obviously there is a science to everything that goes into delivery. But I wonder what your take is on if there is any moment for, you know, any spontaneous action, anything you feel in the moment, maybe gauging the crowd. Or do you think the highest level of, of speaking is more down to that nitty gritty, detailed science, every move, every look, every pause mapped out beforehand? OK, this may sound counterintuitive, and I'm going to try to express it as clearly as, as I can here. There is a benefit to rehearsal and practice and knowing everything down cold. I find that it's the exact opposite of being robotic. When you, a lot of people will tell me, well, if I memorize everything word for word, it'll sound too stiff and formal. Not necessarily. When you are able to be comfortable in front of an audience and you know where you're going next, if something distracts you or you want to move into a different direction, then come back to where you were, it actually becomes easier. Um, you have more confidence because you know where you're going with a presentation. Let me give you one great example <clears throat> that we can use historically. Everybody would know this. One of the greatest speeches, often cited as the greatest speech of the 20th century, was Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. <clears throat> 19, what was that, 1963? So he gives this amazing speech, I Have a Dream, everybody knows it. There's a lot of rhetorical devices. We can spend an entire book, an entire hour, just on the rhetorical language and how he used language in that speech, which is why persuasion is so important that persuasion begins with writing. But getting back to our, our question here, very few people know this fact, and it is a fact. You can look it up. It's well written. It's been written about in the last few years. The I have a dream portion of the dream speech was not made up, but it was um, delivered spontaneously at that time, the original script, which was handed to the press 
for the Martin Luther King speech because he was already a big civil rights leader, you know, before that speech. That's why he had that that position. The the uh, speech that the press was handed did not have. I have a dream that one day I have a dream that someday, you know, that beautiful rhetorical technique that was not in the speech because Martin Luther King was so confident as a speaker only after years and years and thousands and thousands of speeches that when he was up at that Lincoln Memorial, he could read the crowd. He could sense the, the energy and he knew spontaneously that if he pulled a section from another sermon that he had given, uh, that that section and that part of the sermon would work well on this particular audience. The most fascinating thing about you know speech making are those type of things when you realize, wow, the, the most famous speech in history, part, the reason why it was the most famous speech in the, of the 20th century was because he improvised it. So he didn't make it up on the spot. He was still very well practiced. That's the point. He knew that. He knew it cold because he had already delivered delivered it maybe hundreds of times, but to smaller audiences. And it wasn't in that speech. So he was able to pull from it as he read the audience. So it, it's sort of my long-winded way of trying to get this across that the more practiced you are, at public speaking, and the more confident you are, you can actually be more spontaneous. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's a hard. It's kind of a hard. I feel like it's a hard concept to get across. No, I, I completely agree, and I think that in terms of the spontaneity, by being so well practiced and knowing your craft and your speech and different things, that only once you know that so well, that then the spontaneity can be can be incorporated, but not vice versa, if that's and what every, I'm understanding. And absolutely. And every time you you give presentations and speak, it gets tighter. Your stories get tighter. You edit on the go. Uh, you know what works and what doesn't work. Maybe you've delivered a particular story to one audience. They loved it. Great. I'll use that story for this other audience. Um, so it's th this whole idea of practice and rehearsal and being able to improvise, I think, all, all go together. And there's confidence too. I mean, if you're if you talk a lot and you've given a lot of public speeches, you know, you're constantly being able to stand up in front of a group and put a smile on your face and act confident. And your body language and your delivery, everything will follow. So it's um, th there's a lot to learn, guys. I mean, there there uh, I don't want to scare people. Um, I wrote a book called Five Stars, The Communication Secrets to Get from Good to Great. That's my latest book. It just came out in paperback, and I know it's in the UK as well. Uh, that book is really aimed at young people in particular, uh, millennials, or people who want to grow in their careers or entrepreneurs because it makes the case, the first one-third of the book makes the case that persuasion is no longer a soft skill. In fact, I can't stand that word anymore, soft skill. I don't even use it. Uh, the data show that persuasion, public speaking, communication are fundamental skills to get from good to great in your career. Five stars. There's only a few people, there's only a few companies that get 
a five-star rating in almost any field. And that's because those companies are led by people who have more emotional connections with their, with their audiences. They're great speakers. Same with entrepreneurs. Same with companies um, that look for, like McKinsey. I did some research and work with McKinsey. It's a consulting company. Five, uh, one half of 1% of applicants are hired at McKinsey. Well, it's not enough to have an MBA from a prestigious school. That's sort of the table stakes. That's just to get in the door. But the difference between people who are already good and have experience and have credentials and the people who get hired often comes down to who can communicate better because they have to put these young people in front of their clients. And if, you're, if you cannot express com complex information in something that is simple and understandable and interesting to your client, they still don't want you, even though you have that prestigious MBA. It's really fascinating, guys. There's, I think persuasion and communication and public speaking, what we're talking about here are the, are the fundamental skills to succeed in almost any category that I've seen. Perhaps historical examples of really some of the most influential people in history say Abe Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Winston Churchill. What, were there any specific devices, any influential techniques, perhaps unity or anything else which, which they used, which really captivated? Were they great storytellers? What, how, did they, how did they achieve what they did? Uh, I've I've done a lot of studying on Winston Churchill. I think Winston Churchill, even in the UK, is uh, I'm not sure if everyone appreciates uh, the fact that the people wanted to uh, the majority of the population wanted appeasement with Nazi Germany, uh, you know, at that time. And uh, Winston, obviously, you know, Churchill was against that. But it was his speeches in May and June and July of 1940 when he first became prime minister that turned around public opinion. And that's not my opinion. That, that, that is the, uh, the conclusion of many academics who have studied this. So that, that, that is persuasion on an epic level. <laughs> if it hadn't been for Winston Churchill, uh, we may be – facing a very different world right now. And it was because Winston Churchill spent decades studying. And remember, he was a journalist early on. He was a, a newspaper guy, a journalist covering war. Um, he became prime minister and he had spent decades. So it's almost like there was this magical event where the right person who had the right words, who had studied persuasion and, and storytelling at the right time came just at the time they, the world needed him most. Uh, and Abe Lincoln was also very similar. So let me give you a something that is historical. I don't want to bore people with history. You know, I know sometimes people get, uh, they want to hear more about Steve Jobs. I get that. Um, but I do want to just very briefly focus on one thing that everyone can learn from. There's a book called Leadership in Turbulent Times, and it's by a great historian, Doris Kearns Goodwin. She wrote the book on Abraham Lincoln that was turned into the movie by Steven Spielberg, Lincoln. Well, this new book called Leadership in Turbulent Times is about different presidents, but read the chapters on Abraham Lincoln. The thing that surprised her most 
And she was asked this question, what surprised you most about Abraham Lincoln that you didn't know? She said he was a magnificent storyteller. And so he studied rhetoric and persuasion and storytelling when he was moving his way up in the political world. And so at the, he was the right president at the right time. And we would not have, uh, you know, abolished slavery in America at that time if it had not been for Abraham Lincoln. But what I argue is that we never would have had an Abraham Lincoln if he was not such a magnificent storyteller. Because in the book, she talks about people coming around to from villages from miles away to hear this young man who everyone was talking about as one of the great storytellers of all time. They wanted to hear him speak because at that time we didn't have radio or television right, or, or uh, Instagram. So people went to hear speakers and people were fascinated by this young man who could weave a tale and then talk about America in these uh, in this narrative that would unify and bring people together. And he, he won the election and then went on to write the Emancipation Proclamation. So my argument, guys, especially historical, and there's a lot of history in five stars, a lot of history in five stars. Everything from Winston Churchill uh, to the American Revolution, to John Kennedy, to the moon landing, to Abe Lincoln. Uh, most great events throughout history start with someone who is skilled in the art of what we're talking about here, the art of persuasion. Something, um, as you were saying that to me, I, I was thinking of another political leader. I know that he came up in a book I was reading the other day called The Charisma Myth, and that's Bill yeah. Clinton. Yes, the charisma myth. It's been a while since I had read that. I remember that, recall that book as being very good. But uh, remind me of the Bill Clinton story. And the example was that whenever Bill Clinton would speak to, uh, or he was in a meeting or he was speaking to the upper echelon levels of government, he would lower the tonation of his voice. He would lessen the Southern accent. But whenever he would go out on the roads and say, speak to the working class, he would heighten his southern accent so it would make you feel. <laughs> yes, yes, you know. I remember that. What, what do you think? What do you think about that as a persuasive? Uh, hey, hey, look, here's a guy who knows his audience, huh? <laughs> yeah. You know, knows his audience. That, look, that's part of persuasion too. You've got to know your audience and know uh, what type of words work with your particular audience. Winston Churchill talked about this too in some of his books. He understood his audience and he would use uh, simple uh, Anglo word, Anglo-Saxon words, he said, that were, uh, th that the masses uh, would, you know, gravitate to and understood better. Uh, so he didn't want to talk to an elite, the, the elite level, an academic language when he was talking to another group of people. Well, to me, that that means he, the man knows his audience. Um, the other thing I recall about Bill Clinton, and this was an amazing uh, observation. I remember years ago when I was writing another book on communication skills and I was interviewing a journalist who had covered presidents, uh, U.S. presidents. And I asked him who stood out the most. And he said, without hesitation, oh, Bill Clinton, absolutely. He was the most charismatic, you know, to use the word from the book, you were the most charismatic person I've ever met. And so I said, well, why? Because you agreed with his policies or maybe you're part of the political party. You know, I was kind of looking at it from that angle. And he said, oh, no, nothing like that. 
when he talked to me, he made me feel like I was the most important person in the room. And there was a room there with Bill Gates in it next to me. So we were, he was at some event. And when Bill Clinton saw him, oh, you know, so-and-so, nice to see you again. You know, hey, t- t- tell me, tell me about your, is your mother feeling better? You know, I mean, it's like he had this uncanny memory um, and he could remember almost ever, anything about uh, conversations. And so here is the president of the United States talking to this reporter. Obviously, they had seen each other in certain circles. And Bill Gates was also in the room. And yet Bill Clinton, for that moment, for those moments, made that reporter feel like he was the most important person in the, at that event. That's that's part of persuasion, isn't it? Getting people to build a rapport with you. So what I took from that and something that we can get back to right now and, and something I use all the time, find out something about your audience. Find out something about your listener uh, or or the client or customer who you are trying to seduce, you know, or you are trying to sell or, or build a relationship with, and use that as a, a an area where you have a common connection. I've I've seen some very successful CEOs use that. I had a guy not too long ago. He's one of the most successful CEOs in Silicon Valley, and I had a conversation with him. I was set up for an interview. He walks into the room. And it was like he and I had known each other for years and we were best friends. It was the first time I had met the man. But he knew a little about me. And he knew that my girls were in gymnastics. You know, oh, I understand you have two girls. Uh, yeah, how are they doing in gymnastics? You know, that kind of, I was like, well, um, they're, they're doing great. Uh, tell me about your family. Oh, well, I, you know. And so we had this conversation. Later, after the interview, I realized that he had a briefing book. His assistant puts together a briefing book, tells you just a little bit about that person. So he makes these instant connections with you. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it, guys? (laughs) So interesting. It really is. This whole thing, you know, charisma and building rapport and persuasion. I I hesitate to say there's formulas, but there's formulas to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, just just like when when you were uh, saying that, I remember in in that book actually the the charisma myth. She gave another example about Bill Clinton, and it talked about how just a member of the public paid him a compliment. It could be like, oh, you know, I, I really like the speech you gave, or you know, you're doing uh, good things, or just just a, a standard compliment which you imagine that he would have heard thousands and thousands of times and the author says that clinton was described as he just stopped his 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 eyes really softened he just had this enormous smile on his face he like just turned a bit red and he was like ah oh, shucks yeah you know that <laughs> means the world to me and, and i you, will you, have to- I have to reread that book. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good read, and um, yeah, and it, it just our ability, as you said, to just make people just feel good about themselves. I'm sure that that is a common trait which you see in the and make people feel interesting is a common trait which you see in your work about in persuasion and influence. Well, I've done some research lately. Um, and th- again, this is somewhat, this is historical, but it applies to everything and, and all of our listeners today, whether they're entrepreneurs or, or aspiring leaders, 
Um, I've been doing a lot of research into the moon landing because on July 20th, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of first time, first landing on the moon. Well, there's a lot of research out of NASA uh, documents that point to John F. Kennedy as being the persuasive trigger that started the whole moon launch. And so there's a lot we can learn about persuasion. I don't believe that anything happens, any big event, um, or even, a you know, and nothing starts. A, a company doesn't get funded uh, or, or we don't land on the moon unless there is some persuasive person behind it. And so John F. Kennedy was able to ignite people's imagination, inspire people to do something that they did not believe was possible. That's fascinating. How can you inspire someone to believe that they could possibly achieve something that in the back of their head they're saying, no, nah, this isn't going to happen? That's amazing. And he did that through using a number of rhetorical devices, uh, metaphors and analogies um, and a consistent mission. This is why I'm a big proponent of the mission statement. I know that there's, you know, but we make fun of mission statements because sometimes they just sound ridiculous. But a good, well-crafted mission statement with a deadline actually inspires people to to reach higher and to serve a purpose. So when John Kennedy said, you know, our, our mission is going to be to land a, a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth by the end of the decade, that was the first time people heard that. Uh, up until then, NASA's mission was very abstract. No one even knew what it was all about. They had, you know, some kind of agency put together to explore a bunch of different things in, in space and the solar system. There was no sense of unity or mission or deadlines. And he knew, John F. Kennedy knew that it was very important to do that. So I, I see that as an analogy to today's leadership. Um, you know, people join companies because there's a purpose behind them. They are attracted to the mission of the company. So make sure that your mission is something that inspires people. And if you put a deadline on it, even better. Hmm. Yeah, that's that, a lot of what you said there about purpose. Um, it, it just brings up themes from uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. So I, I really appreciate what you're talking about there. I, uh, I've got to reread that book too. It's been many years since I read uh the Dale Carnegie book, but yeah, it's, uh, some of this isn't new, you know, it's just, we need to be re reminded of it. Um, and to take it to another level. So yeah, absolutely. Now Dale Carnegie. Okay. If you guys don't mind, let me take an aside because it's going to apply to everybody listening. Um, who read Dale Carnegie's book? It was one of his favorite books of all time. He's a billionaire, one of the richest people in the world was motivated by Dale Carnegie. His name is Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett has said repeatedly that that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, was one of the most important books in his life. He didn't cite financial books or stock books. Uh, those came later. But that first book was important because without being able to communicate and connect with people, nothing else happens. He doesn't become a stockbroker. <laughs> and if he doesn't become a stockbroker and start learning about stocks, then he never becomes the wealthiest man in the world, right? So it, uh, yeah, all of this, you know, public speaking, communication, connecting with people, it's one of, that's why I don't call it a soft skill. You know, so soft skill means 
soft, like it's not nearly as important as as anything else. Well, I, I make the argument that nothing happens without it. That book, it did the same thing for me. I, I know often sight is one of the most important things I've ever read. Now, back to you. You've done a fantastic job breaking down the world's best TED speakers. And I've previously heard you say you've analyzed upwards of 150 of the top speakers and then combined this with the research from neuroscientists, which we absolutely love. And what we wanted to ask was if you noticed any key elements or themes that consisted throughout the best presentations you saw? Yeah, there are a number of consistent themes that come up in almost every TED talk. And uh, if I could backtrack for just a moment on TED, I wrote a book called Talk Like TED. And it, it it became a very popular public speaking book. And it's still very relevant today and still very popular. I did not write that for people to give a TED talk. It's not how to deliver, how to get on the TED stage necessarily. It's it's what we can learn from people who gave great TED talks and and how do those talks go viral? What is it about those talks that have common elements? A lot of people, uh, and some rather famous people too, have used that book as a guide, uh, but also people who are pitching venture capitalists or giving a presentation in a class. Uh, that it's, it's become a very popular book for classrooms and public speaking. So I would look at it as a public speaking book, but what we can learn from some people who are really good at it, and which happen to be some many of the TED speakers. So the a few common elements, uh, this one absolutely, you have to tell stories. It's, it's all about how how you can craft those personal anecdotes uh, about yourself and weave it into the theme. Okay, so let me give you one example. There is a gentleman in particular who I'm fascinated with. I've got to speak with him a couple of times. His name is Brian Stevenson. He's probably more popular in the U.S. than he is in the U.K. Uh, He is a human rights attorney in, in America, who is uh, into civil rights and also his he, uh, claim to fame is getting people off death row in prison who are incarcerated unjustly. So he's also won cases before our U.S. Supreme Court. He knows how to persuade. And he gave a TED Talk that has the longest standing ovation of any TED Talk in TED's 30-year history, if you can imagine that. So his name is Brian Stevenson, and anyone can look him up. But I I analyzed his TED Talk very specifically, and 65%, I think was the number, 65% of the content was stories, stories from his life, stories that shaped who he is. The rest was data and information, but it was the stories that are prominent, stories about when he was was a young boy and only 11 years old, and and his grandmother inspired him. you know, to, to have a sense of identity, um, or, or a story about the day he met Rosa Parks, a civil rights leader. It was humorous, but it was also insightful and interesting. Uh, but it was funny too, you know, so he combined story and humor to win people over. And I've had some long conversations with Brian Stevenson and he said, narrative stories are, are absolutely fundamental to great communication. 
uh, because you have to break down barriers and connect with people, and only stories can do that. So that that was my big takeaway. No matter who you are, you can't. Ju- you, if you're an entrepreneur, you're pitching investors or you're trying to solicit support. You can't walk in and just bring up a PowerPoint of your product. You have to tell the stories behind the product, and maybe there's a personal story of why that product came to be. I just uh, spent some time with a venture capitalist at Andreessen Horowitz, one of the biggest venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. They're behind Airbnb, big investor behind Airbnb, Instagram, Pinterest, and others. And we talked about storytelling. He said, you know, when you come in and you're looking for money from a venture capitalist and you don't really have a product to show, you just have an idea, you've got to create a narrative. You've got to create a journey that I want to be a part of. So again, it on an epic level, on a TED level, on a just an entrepreneur with an idea level, the stories you tell are the most impactful, impactful rhetorical tool that you have. But that, if you want to know what's the common element among TED, take a look. Almost all of them start with stories. We've had a number of TED speakers on. I'm sure you've you've probably interviewed most of them. We had Julian Treasure on. I think his TED talk hmm. is one of the most. Uh, viewed ever and when I'll, we... have to, I'll have to rewatch that because I think there was an element of there that that worked really well and I for purposes of our podcast today I can't recall what it is but I, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I, yeah. it's been a while I want to re, re-look at that but that's what I do I look at um, TED Talks or presentations that people like you bring up or, or books and I'll read it or I'll watch it and more often than not I, I can pinpoint why that was so popular, why you liked it. And it always falls in this formula because persuasion hasn't changed in thousands of years. We know how this works. We know how to connect with people. We just have to be reminded of it and start incorporating it into our professional lives. It's really interesting. It's a real talent to 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 do that. And just two things which really came to my mind is, I mean, we've, we've watched plenty of TED Talks and I always feel as if there's always two real main components and, I, and I'd love to get your opinion on this I mean you're a real expert yeah tell it, me is I always find that there's some sort of like a humorous aspect almost as if it's you know some sort of novelty and then it's usually the best ones I've seen also have a real emotional side am I right in there Combined with well, the storytelling, of course. Yeah, well, uh, okay, yes, you are right, and storytelling is emotional, right? So mm. sto- uh, emotion, uh, there's a lot of research into this. You know, people cannot make a decision if it's not emotional, which, again, sounds counterintuitive. Uh, all of us think we are the most logical reason to people, and we only make decisions based on logic and facts and information. Well, that's <laughs> not true at all. Um, and in fact, they have found that if if you are not emotional, there's been a few things throughout history and science where people, because of brain injuries, have lost the concept of emotion. So they could still do mathematical computations. They don't even know whether they're they have to motivate. You have to motivate yourself to get up in the morning. It, it's fascinating. You know, think about that. You have to motivate yourself. You have to because it's easier just to lie in bed. 
Well, why do you want to motivate yourself? Because it's kind of like the, the narrative that you see for yourself, the life that you want to lead. I mean, it's all emotional. You cannot make a, a decision without emotion. So if you do not know how to reach people's emotion, you're going to fail to convince them to do anything because their decisions are based on emotion more so than facts, information, and logic. But you need all of that. This goes back to Aristotle. I cannot convince you to do anything unless I can balance emotion and a logical appeal to reason, information, logic. Here, are, here is the evidence for why I want you to take this course of action. This is, um, you know, I can tell you a story about myself and why I started a particular product. And that'll get you hooked emotionally, but then I have to show you some metrics that, that we actually do have sales. People buy this product. Our sales are growing. You know, you have to have a balance of both, both the facts and the emotion. And, and that's the combination. I can't tell you how many people, how many venture capitalists I've talked to. I can't tell you how many billionaires I've talked to recently who will tell you exactly this. Um, and they're very public about it. Richard Branson told me you cannot be successful as an entrepreneur today unless you're a good storyteller. Now, he was emphatic about it because he understands um, you facts alone are not enough. Uh, you know, you have to do storytelling. You can look at all of the major movements of our time, too. Uh, the, you know, these are getting to be complex times. Uh, in the UK, I know you guys are based in the UK, the whole Brexit thing. I mean, there's a lot of persuasion around that. Uh, I, I recall a lot of the elites and a lot of academics and, and uh, leaders were saying, "How can? How is this possible that the uh, you know the majority of people voted to leave the European Union?" And what some of the research found was that they were talking to people in the language of science um, and data and information and policies, and they weren't connecting with people emotionally or what they felt. You see, so you can look at almost any major political development today in any part of the world, and there's a lot of persuasion behind it. it. may not even be conscious persuasion, but if something doesn't work the way you expected, it's usually because there was a breakdown in the way you, that that particular leader or movement presented a, a concept. So I, I love studying that stuff, but that gets... That's really complicated and not, you know, not exactly the easiest uh, thing to write about. But that's what, that's what I tend to focus on. I am more fascinated not by, uh, especially in political rhetoric today, I'm not fascinated by the people who give you a very simple statement and win people over because that's the statement that their audience wants to hear. I'm more interested in how do you make complex arguments understandable and compelling. Everything is more complex than we think because I work with a lot of different companies in many, many fields. Uh, climate change. Uh, okay, I can talk to you for a few hours on climate change. This stuff gets really, really complicated. It doesn't fit into a little political soundbite. How do you talk about climate change in a way that people understand and moves them to action? I don't necessarily have a – I don't have an answer for you. I don't. That, but that's why, that's why it intrigues me. The complex – persuasion is is tough that, that that's what i like to work on right now as we're starting to run out of time now we just want to jump into our last three quick questions that we ask every guest 
that comes on the show and the first one is obviously you are a very respected author yourself but what our audience would love to know is are there any specific books that you've read in your life that have greatly impacted you I read about 75 books a year and you know I say that because I'm proud of that I get a lot of books from publishers now because I do a lot of writing and so they send me books most of them are nonfiction or history books and the more you read, the the better speaker, better communicator, and better writer you are. Um, so, absolutely. So, thanks for asking that question. I will give you one book in particular. Well, the the book that I mentioned earlier. If you want history plus persuasion, read Doris Kearns Goodwin, Leadership in Turbulent Times. Uh, if you want a psychology book, make sure that you read Thinking Fast, Slow. Um, I'm sure you guys are, you're probably familiar with that. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, Yeah, Daniel Kahneman. There's a lot of communication in there because he talks about all of our biases. And the more you understand about your mental biases that we all have, because this is the way the brain is kind of functioned and evolved, uh, the more you can understand communication as well and why people aren't receiving certain messages. Uh, and, and he too talks about how to keep persuasion understandable and simple and what works and what doesn't. So there's a lot of psychology behind that. My, the book that I not only recommend, but I revisit like once a year is Daniel Kahneman's work. Amazing. So our next question is, before we dive into our last question, you are a very, very well-respected man. Your name, really, when we speak to people, is up in marquee lights. Just look at the resume of people that you associate with, and it's such a pleasure to speak to. Oh, thank you. One could imagine that throughout your life you haven't specifically followed a traditional path. So we would love to know, in your lifetime, are there any rules in which you've loved to have broken or have broken? When I was studying at uh, UCLA, I wanted to become a lawyer. And I think I only wanted to be a lawyer because at that time, everybody else was becoming a lawyer. And they were making a lot of money. And it was in Los Angeles. You know, <laughs> it, was like, it was kind of a, attractive. Uh, and I made some hard decisions. And for years, I, I just felt like I, maybe I had made the wrong decision. As, uh, although I had this, the grades to go to law school, I went to journalism school. And I really wanted to follow that passion because I loved current events and journalism. And I became a fairly successful, uh, but not world famous, but fairly successful broadcast journalist. So I had an okay career. And I moved to New York City for a couple of years. Um but it, that, too, did not turn out to be the path or the career path that was giving me the most joy. And, um, and so I started writing. I wrote books. And then one book became very successful, Presentation Secrets. And then I started teaching corporate clients on public speaking and communication. And I wrote more books that also became popular. And so I realized that, boy, you can't always go into something with a a very clear cut plan without giving yourself some flexibility in there of following your passion. Yes. But then seeing where that passion may lead you. Uh, so I didn't get, you know, too hooked on following my passion as a journalist. That is why I did not attend law school. And I was very happy about that. But then when I was making, 
you know, $13,000 a year or 15000 on my first job um, in, in a part of the world that was, you know, 30 degrees below zero, I thought, I mean, boy, that, <laughs> I'm not sure if I made the right decision. So you do have to have the courage to kind of break out of the path and look at the long term and also just kind of find find your path along the way and continue to follow those things that you enjoy, pursue those things and learn more from people. But uh, you also can't get yourself locked into a particular area either. Fantastic answer. And our final question should be an interesting one given your field. Um, And that is if – there was a circumstance, imagine, where everyone in the world was tuned into the same frequency and they said, Carmine, you have the opportunity to broadcast just one short, simple message and everyone in the world would be able to hear it. What would your message be? I think it would, It would. that's a really good question. Uh, uh, yeah, I do think it would fall under uh, under. Communication, but also an inspirational message, too. I think my message would be that uh, you truly can accomplish anything you set your mind to. Uh, so uh, th- there's an old adage, you know, what, you'll see it when you believe it. And out of everybody I've ever met, I, I meet a lot of very successful people. I kind of wish I knew this when I was in my 20s. That, that if you have a, a big, bold vision for your life and you dream bigger than everybody else, sooner or later, you end up reaching that path. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's a very powerful psychological concept that when you actually start believing something, uh, you'll begin to see it. And I, I don't think a lot of young people kind of understand that. You, you understand that as you get a little older and you start meeting people. But boy, I, I've met so many people who came from nothing. I mean, nothing, far less than I had, but who had bigger dreams and didn't under didn't know that it was a, an impossible dream to achieve. And yet they achieved it, right? So, so, so it never stopped them. So it's something around there. I'm still trying to articulate it because I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, but I think we are our own worst enemies, and we we put limits on ourselves. What a brilliant answer, and what an absolute pleasure that it has been having you on the show. Your your use of examples and theory, and just the way you communicate is so brilliant. Where can our audience connect with you, Carmine? I've got a great Italian name and a wonderful Italian heritage. So if you can if you can remember Carmine Gallo, you'll find me. Uh, that's my primary website, Carmine Gallo, G-A-L-L-O, uh, CarmineGallo.com, uh, Carmine Gallo on Twitter, uh, Carmine Gallo on LinkedIn. So I'm <laughs> so please please connect with me, and I, I'd love to hear more. And go to my website, sign up for my email, send us a contact. Absolutely. I I want to keep in touch with your listeners. That is amazing. And we will link to all of your work, including your latest book. This has been such a brilliant interview. I can't thank you enough for coming on, Carmine. Well, thank you, guys. I'm I'm glad I was with some like-minded hosts who understand the power of communication. So I appreciate it.